Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. No my whakaronga mai ki te Aotai Whenua. Welcome to Country Life. I'm Sally Round. Great to have your company. I'm Duncan Smith. Today we catch up with Leslie Wilson, six months after Cyclone Gabrielle sent massive logs and tons of silt smashing into the family's Hawke's Bay orchard. Cosmo visits an edible plant nursery on the west coast, while Leah takes a visit to the carving shed. And later, we meet three generations involved in the sport of competitive wood chopping, who are also at the cutting edge of axe making. But first to a wrap of news from our rural news team and Leah Tabbitts in Kirikiriroa, Hamilton, with some big news this week from Marlborough. Hi Sally. Yes, Thursday this week marked the 50th anniversary of the first planting of commercial grapevines and what's regarded as the home of Sauvignon Blanc. Fast forward to the present day and New Zealand is now the world's sixth largest exporter of wine by value, with 78% of the wine produced coming out of sunny Marlborough. So how was the event celebrated? Local journalist and author Tessa Anderson launched her new book, 50 Years, 50 Stories, on the site where late pioneer and founder of Montana Wines, Frank Jukic, first turned more than 1,600 hectares of farmland into vineyards in 1973. A lot of people sort of say, you know, what's going to happen to Melbourne now? We've been so phenomenally successful in 50 years. And we have to remember that Marlborough is the size of Champagne in France. That's what I'd hope for Marlborough in the future, that we get higher prices for our wine so that the growers all remain financially sustainable. And I also think it's quite phenomenal where we're at when you think that Champagne is centuries years old. We're 50. And you have an update for us on the wool in school story, Leah. Well, a number of rural school principals are fundraising to purchase New Zealand wool carpets themselves. You'll remember the government's plan is to outfit 800 schools with synthetic flooring tiles that are due for upgrading. North Canterbury Rotherham school principal Cheryl Barbara says her school was part of the renovation programme but was told if they refused the synthetic option they couldn't access this portion of the funding for wool carpet. So how's she finding the funds to make this happen? Miss Barbara contacted carpet maker Bremworth, which was happy to help. She says the school board will have quotes to consider and Rotherham isn't the only school taking action. We're a rural principals group, so they, they put out a survey and yeah, 80% of the people said that they would rather go with wool carpet rather than getting the synthetic tile. The school does a lot of fundraising during the year, so we'll be using funds from those to pay for it. You know, we are in a small rural community. At the moment, we're teaching our kids about the benefits of wool. It just goes against everything that we're teaching the kids about sustainability. What did you hear from the carpet manufacturer? 
Cavalier Brimworth's chief executive, Greg Smith, says schools that are due to replace their existing flooring will get a subsidy equivalent to at least 30% of the cost. And he says he doesn't understand the Ministry of Education's decision when the government has a strong sustainability goal. Now, Zaspri's taking ownership of some serious fruit quality issues last year. The kiwi fruit exporter admits it was not nimble enough to deal with poor quality fruit late last year, which is estimated to have cost half a billion dollars. Chief Executive Dan Matheson apologised to growers at the annual meeting this week, saying that mistakes flowed through to giving growers an incorrect steer on the mid-season financial forecast guidance, an error which resulted in Zespri not paying expected fruit payments for some months. So what does that mean moving forward? Mr Matheson says some quality issues came from the orchard and packhouse operators too and it's pleasing to see all parts of the supply chain can improve performance this season. However, he says they're still receiving too much fruit that's failing to meet Zespri's standards and while that's frustrating for growers, the company will not compromise on quality. Now, a decade-long study has shown native-burdened insect species were able to thrive where the poison 1080 was dropped from the air. Researchers from Victoria University tracked bird and insect populations in the Rimataka and Aurangi ranges before, during and after three 1080 drops were used. They found populations of native pihipihi, silver eye and weta grew while introduced species like blackbirds decreased when possums, rats, rabbits and stoats were controlled. Co-author and Associate Professor Stephen Hartley says while the pesticide is biodegradable and effective, he understands why some New Zealanders hold views against the use of poison in nature. I mean, it is a poison, so it has to be used carefully, but everything I've seen shows me it is used carefully and that the the targets, which is the possums and uh, rats, they're very effectively controlled and on the whole bird life benefits from the control of those, as does insect life. Now, animal rights groups oppose the use of 1080 in natural environments, don't they? They do. However, Stephen Hartley says it's about protecting native biodiversity and wildlife and, of course, meeting the predator-free by 2050 goal. Why are farmers being warned to avoid blanket drenching their stock for internal parasites? Well, the problem of drench-resistant worms continues to increase. North Canterbury vet Alistair Kenyon says plenty of farmers have worms and they are surviving, despite increasingly stronger drugs being used. He says farmers need to be strategic about how they use medication to control parasites, which are not only a problem for sheep, but increasingly for cattle as well. It's an area that we're really working hard in to try and reduce medicine usage overall. The days of of using a blanket drench approach on all stock classes is fast approaching an end. We need to preserve these medicines while they still have effectiveness. Alistair Kenyon is urging farmers not to drench stock in good condition at the same time they dose those which are obviously riddled with worms. And fewer bobby calves are flowing through the meatworks than expected, Leah. What's behind that? So Fonterra introduced new rules in June, which state the male calves, a byproduct of the dairy industry, have to enter a value stream and could no longer be killed on farm. There were concerns in the industry this would cause a backlog at meat processing plants, 
The AgriHQ senior analyst Mel Crowd says that hasn't eventuated. I guess it just means that those early estimates from the dairy industry um, are possibly a little off the mark um, or it is confirmation that more calves are actually being reared on dairy farms this year. And lastly, Leah, the call's gone out for more people to farm cashmere goats. It comes as a newly opened lower hut processing factory has the capacity to turn cashmere fleeces into fibre, which is sold at top dollar offshore. New Zealand cashmere business development manager Olivia Sanders says cashmere goats are a great investment on farms and the market demand for cashmere is booming. Currently the fibre returns are between $110 and $150 a kilo, So that's obviously wonderful. However, the goat brings so much more to the farming system than just the fibre and that fibre return. They actually really love weeds. They'll target weeds, seed head particularly. They'll target those different species than your cattle or your sheep will. That's all from me, Sally. Enjoy the weekend. Kia ora. You're listening to Country Life on RNZ National, 101 FM. Our guest this week is possibly looking forward, more than most, to budburst on her apple trees. We first met Leslie Wilson the week of Cyclone Gabrielle, when Sally trudged through the family's silt-laden orchard in Hawke's Bay's Pukitapu area. Enormous logs had crashed through the stop bank and bowled over most of their apple trees just on harvest time, and they lost their home amidst it all. But a lot has happened in the past six months. We are pleasantly surprised at how far we've got through. Um, We had an awful lot of debris on our particular property and uh, we've got rid of it all. Well, the council came in and got rid of it all. So we're about 18 months ahead of where we thought we were going to be when it all first happened. So um, I know a lot of people aren't in that situation, but um, we're particularly pleased with how far we've got through in one of our properties. Um, There's still a lot of places up the valley with debris, but um, council's coming in with chippers and chipping all the debris, the logs are being taken away by the logging trucks and um, the council is taking away the chipped product and that's been uh, turned into uh, compost. That was the main problem for you, wasn't it? But you did it have was. you did have silt as well. Is that all yes, cleaned up? Yep. Uh, mostly. I'm up the valley. There's still tractors and trailers and trucks uh, going up and down all day, every day, being filled up with silt and mixed debris and being taken to other places. So that work hasn't stopped. But on our particular property, we are, we are getting there. I can see us putting a crop in this spring. In terms of, of the silt and the impact of the silt, last time we spoke you were still a bit unsure about how it was impacting the trees. Are you any closer to knowing whether there's been any further rot or damage to them? There was a group called Landwise that came through and um, tested the silt on the property um, and the pH was particularly high so at that point we decided that the the silt's got to go there was no way that we could integrate that back into the soil it has been a wet winter and some areas still haven't really dried out and we are waiting for um, bud burst and blossom to have a look at the leaf health and then have a look at fruit set and then the next stress period will be uh, at harvest. Have you been applying anything or doing anything differently to the trees to, say, combat disease no. in any way? No, some some areas we still haven't been able to get on because it's still a bit wet. So we'll do some leaf analysis, September, October, November-ish, and we'll do some fruitless analysis and we'll just see what's there. And with all the damage and the loss of trees that you had being bowled over yes. by those logs, are you considering replanting or is it too early for that? 
No, we will be replanting, um, but we've got to make a couple of decisions, um, when and what. So <laughs> the variety to replant is, uh, is the biggest question, really. Also, since we spoke, the council has categorised properties' flood risk as to whether the properties can be rebuilt or not. What have you been told? So uh, one of our properties, one with all the debris, has been category three or red zoned. Um, so we can't rebuild a house there. And so that's the place where our children were living, our home. We're still in 2C, which when the stop bank has been certified, it'll go to a one. So we'll be able to rebuild here. And whether we will or not, that's a process of we're going around in circles. But we can't do a thing until the insurance company gives us some money for our houses. And are you still in the cabin uh, on your home block that you'd fixed up? Well, we'd we'd stripped out and um, relined. Yes, we're still in the cabin. That's not ideal. Uh, Also, since we last spoke, we've heard that there will be no grants for orchardists like yourself to repair damage. Instead, the government's come up with a loan scheme. Has that provided you with any more certainty? Yes, it has, actually. Um, And we're currently working with the banks to um, see how we can access both of those schemes at least we know where we're at you know we've got something to work with and Leslie how is the local community because I understand that the bridge has gone and that's essentially split uh, Pukitapu in two it has Um, and it's a little bit sad and disappointing that we're going to have to wait 18 months to two years to get a another bridge but when we do it'll be a proper two-laner with a cycle walkway track on the side I understand and recently they've just opened up a bridge further down the way and that's that's helped immensely. I think a lot of people maybe tears might be just below the surface but they're getting on and doing what they need to do and understanding that what they're feeling is completely normal and um, yeah just to just to work through it. There is help out there for people and we're keeping it I mean the community keeps an eye on each other. Leslie Wilson speaking to me from her orchard in Pukitapu in Hawke's Bay. Leslie says she's looking forward to their regular team of workers arriving back from Samoa in the spring. We're heading to Waikato now with Leah Tebbett for an update on the calving season. Can you believe the days are getting longer? Daffodils are showing face and there's more and more calves in the paddocks. Spring is well and truly on its way. I've come out to Morinsville today to talk to longtime farmer Peter Leheran. I met him in the calving shed in the afternoon. And bear in mind, there's some hungry calves not too far from us. Well, we started calving for our heifers on the 9th of July, and the main herd started on the 18th of July. And we are now into week five. We reached halfway, I think, at about the 4th of August. Normally it's about the 26th, 27th of July. And believe it or not, it's quite funny, cow number 150 carved as the 150th cow to carve. Kyle rang me up just to say, whoopee, did we arrange it or did we not? (laughs) Oh, I love it. So how big is the dairy operation that you have here? The dairy operation is um, 60 hectares, 56 effective, and we carved down 208 cows. We had rather a poor conception rate with um, mating, and that's the reason we are a bit lower. Normally it's about 215. How has the season gone? Are you are you happy with it despite that sort of low calving rate? There hasn't been any issues obviously with the wetter weather and things like that. 
We're a very, very free-draining farm, so we don't suffer um, wetness to the same degree as a lot of other people. We are disappointed with our calving because of our technician failure earlier on. We've tried to compromise on lots of things with short gestation. One of the disappointing things is the slower calving rate, and the other thing is our lack of heifer calves. So we ended up with 32 heifer calves. Normally at this time we would have anything from 52 to 62 heifer calves. So it's quite disappointing. And with my Frisian herd, I do sell a lot of heifers. We're just keeping all the bulls. Because that's something you mentioned to me earlier, you're keeping all the calves that are born. Can you tell me why that is? Believe it or not, the last 40 years we've managed to onward sell all our early bull calves to um, onward rearers. The market has just dried up. There's nobody doing it. And it's just price. People got stung last year with the poor selling price and the costs of rearing those animals. The milk price obviously took a tumble last <coughs> week. How is that affecting you and your farm? You're obviously Tatoa, so it may be a little bit different, but you'd still be a bit anxious moving ahead. We've been guaranteed a price at the start. Ours is $9, but I've got two sons in the South Island and they're a bit gutted about their price. Um, coming down to $6, yeah, $6.75, I think, is the new price. That's pretty gutting considering the costs of farming nowadays. I would say that would be below break-even for most farmers. Even on a Tatua farm, I mean, we tend to... We still need money to survive, but if we had a $9 payout versus what we're getting this year, this last season, sorry, it would be pretty touch-and-go, break-even-wise. I'm getting sucked to death. <laughs> yes, so am I. I'm getting, the further I walk away, the longer they stretch their necks for those that are listening and actually aren't quite familiar with the farming calendar, what is calving and, and why do you go through it? Well, we need calving in order to have cows to come into milk. So we're coming into mating in a month's time on the 9th of October for an 18th of July calving the following season. And you try to carve within the eight-week period, if you can, nine weeks, ten weeks at the max. Anything after that, you will struggle to perhaps get your cows in calf. So 10 weeks calving is a good long period to calve. Anything longer than that's probably not a good idea. Calving is one of the most traumatic times of the year. For, for town people, it's a really busy time. Kyle, for example, is getting at the cow shed at um, 5.30 in the morning with the cups on, and he's probably going home for breakfast about 11 o'clock in the morning and he's back an hour later doing the rest of the afternoon. It's You're bringing in cows and calves, you're feeding the calves, you're milking the colostrum cows, you're keeping that milk separate on the first take so you can feed your calves in the barn and then you turn around and milk your herd at night and then cows are separated out once they've done eight milkings into the colostrum vat and they can go into the milking herd. So it's just constant, constant, constant. Yeah, it's full on. Morrinsville dairy farmer Peter Laheron. Hi, I'm Mike King from Pawariki Honey. And I'm Kate King. And you'll listen to Country Life. On RNZ National. Cosmo Kentish Barnes is with John Collier, a self-taught botanist who wants locals to start planting edible perennials, not commonly found in the region, that are growing in his nursery and food forest. 
We're on the north side of the Nile or Waitakere River, surrounded on pretty much four sides by native bush and listening to some distant sounds of the birds on the hill. How much land do you own here? Uh, so our, our property is uh, 62 hectares and probably about 61 of that is relatively mature native forest. And yeah, there's 20 metre limestone cliffs hiding in the forest there that we can't see because it's all behind the trees. Mm. Tell me what you do here. Okay, on, on this piece of land? Yeah. So uh, what, what we do is we, we trial a lot of stuff. I, I'd probably say the key word is research and I guess trialling as well. And a lot of it is new crops or existing crops in slightly different ways. Uh, very, lots of very unusual stuff. So how many plants have you got in total? How many different varieties um, do you think? Different varieties or source, seed sources, probably three, 300 I'd estimate. Uh, there's at least 1,000 plants at last count and that was quite a while ago. We're probably close to 2,000. And you've got the nursery in a big clearing. Beautiful plants. So the... The nursery at the moment, I, I, I have a full-time, mostly full-time desk job. So I'm a software engineer. I work four days a week f- for a Wellington company. But definitely we're looking to scale the nursery and get some local people employed in the nursery. Yes. Um, so you're turning this nursery into a business. So what we want to make is something called a social enterprise. So it's kind of a hybrid between a business and a charity. So in the case of a charity, you need a board and the board can sort of control how the charity evolves whereas in a social enterprise I can still be in charge but you you still you're not making any profit it all goes to the employees to the to the back into the business yes and to the community so the ideal way that things will go is that we will get the community growing all of all of these different food plants whatever succeeds the best and if they do so well that we then go out of business that's what we consider a success this is purely just how do we get food plants into the community and change how the region is growing food. Yeah. So, yeah. Show me some of your uh, favourite plants. Ooh. Uh, just step over this over here. Yeah, so let's see what we have here. One plant we grow quite a lot of is lacuma. This is a lacuma over here. Okay. How would you describe that? So lacuma is a South American sort of mountain plant. The fruit is roughly the same size as an avocado, dark green kind of skin. Now the inside of the fruit, it's a very vibrant orange colour, very rich orange, a bit like a, one of the orange kumaras. And I describe the flavours as being like a triangle. So at the very top of the triangle, you have sort of a maple syrup or a butterscotch flavour. Say the, the bottom left of the triangle, you have a sort of kumara sweet potato flavour. And then the bottom right is sort of a dates or raisins flavour. Oh, sounds delicious. Yes, it is. And depending on which variety you have, it can be sort of anywhere in the triangle. So most of them are generally in the middle. Some are very much like tree potatoes. There's not a lot of flavour to them, but they're very big. And then there are some which are quite small and very heavy on the Mm. maple Mm. syrup flavour. Can you grow them to a ripened state in this climate here? Untested. The oldest plant in the area would be under five years old. So it's... Very, very much untested, and, and that's what we do. We, we want to try these plants to see if they can get a foothold locally and be grown. Oh, no, this is a fig, isn't it? Yep, that's yeah. a fig. And this is an unusual plant here. This is Yang Mei. One of the other names is mountain peach. 
It's in the family called Merica or sometimes Morella. This fruit has a berry roughly strawberry sized and again it's very rare in the country. The only plants that I know of that are fruiting are in Northland. The fruit tastes somewhere between a herbal strawberry raspberry flavour and it's a nitrogen fixer which means that it, it supplies its own fertiliser from the air. Um, there's some Chibotacabas here, so about 10 different varieties. Brazilian grape tree, again totally untested locally, they grow fine, there's no problems with them surviving outside, yeah. but who knows how well they're fruit. Yeah, where do you get your seeds from? So th- there is imp- import pathways for um, individuals to import seeds from overseas. It's called the basic seed category on the plant biosecurity index. There's about 20,000 species that are on that index uh, as basic. And as long as they are clean, clean seeds, uh, labelled with the Latin name on the seed packet, and the package declares the contents as seed for sowing, as long as all those three conditions are met, then, then it can just come in. Uh, there's a few others we've imported with phytosanitary certificates, such as these. These, uh, yes. Because of myrtle rust, they have to be fumigated, and that requires uh, a declaration by the seed seller that they've fumigated the seeds. So for some of these plants, it's going to take a long time before you yep. can actually determine yeah. whether they will fruit successfully in this area. Yep. Uh, definitely the most long-term of that would be the bunya, which we can go have a look at over here. So this is a bunya here. Uh, that's an Australian native plant. Oh, it's a bit prickly. It's very prickly. <laughs> it's native to sort of Queensland, two areas in Queensland. It's well known for eventually producing a rugby ball-sized cone. Huh. And inside the cone would be, um, how would we describe those? Well, strawberry-sized nuts, large strawberry-sized. And they roughly taste sort of halfway between a chestnut and a pine nut and a very, very important food for Aboriginal Australians and just a great item to have. So in Australia, there's a bit of a renaissance with with the bunya and people are really picking up the the things you can do with it. And it's really the last few years that there's been a lot of support and um, bunyas grow fine in this part of the country, but you're looking at 30 plus years to get them to fruit. You are here for the long haul. Yep, definitely. (laughs) When did you first become interested in plants hmm i've grown plants on and off definitely since being a young kid uh i've grown i think the first thing was probably flowers there was ferns in there there was cacti there was carnivorous plants there was medicinal plants uh there was it was all in there but i think when, when we lived overseas for a couple of years and while we were overseas i think that's when it really clicked that we are very dependent on going to the supermarket for our food. Pretty much everyone is. And uh, as we've seen just in the last few years, the, the, the feeling of being comfortable at the supermarket can quite quickly change from one of being comfortable to being a bit more like, uh-oh, there's prices. Uh, and, and so that's why we wanted to get people to grow their own food, but in a way in which it's not super high effort. So everything we grow here is perennial. So one, one thing that... A lot of gardeners who, who grow annuals will know is that if you miss a year, you don't really get any food. If you leave your bed a year, you, there's no food. 
Whereas in a, a perennial situation like like an orchard or a food forest, if you don't do any maintenance for a year, you just you can still go harvest avocados, you can still harvest citrus. The yeah. apples are all there, uh, the bananas are still there, and yeah. so that that's really what we think is is a big part of the food security is these perennial plants that just grow and then when you need them you can you can use them. Mm. What's that plant over there with the big lush dark green leaves? So that plant uh it's a loquat. And yeah, loquat is if you haven't tasted it, it's a bit like a mango apricot plum kind of thing. Um definitely one of my favorite fruits. And do you know if that will grow to a fruiting stage here? Yes, there is uh fruiting loquats on the west coast already. Uh, they're, they're relatively tough and you can grow them pretty much in the entire country, I think. I think only some inland parts of the east coast of the South Island are, are going to be too cold. Uh, they can handle sort of close to minus 10, I think. And as long as the, the flowering period is not too cold or not too wet, then you're going to get a good crop. Do you have many plants here that have edible leaves? We have a lot of plants with edible leaves. One example at the back there is called huakatai. Uh That's in the marigold family. I'll go grab a leaf. There you go. Thank you. The first taste I get is uh, very much passion fruit, but then it quickly kind of goes into mint. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit bitter, this leaf. Mm. So we're in winter rather than sort of early spring, and so maybe those leaves have been on the plant mm. a fair while. This would be nice in salads or for cooking. Yep, South American cooking, it's uh, definitely a key flavour. Mm. We grow a lot of taro, so I've probably got about 10 varieties and species at the moment. Mm. Some of the old Maori varieties that have been grown for sort of hundreds of years and came from some very old uh, plantations. There's an island in Northland that our variety of red stem Maori taro came from. And it's, it's still early days. The next stage of the program is to start sort of taste testing them and to see what grows best locally. But yep, that's, that's stage two. Beside the nursery, you've got several large banana trees. Yep, so those are actually our ornamental bananas. We do have edible bananas up the hill that are also fruiting, and we'll walk up to those shortly. Mm. Um, the one on the left is a species called Musa basho, or the basho banana. And we grow that to uh, as, a, as what we call a mulch plant. So it sucks up nutrients, and in winter... All of those nutrients are stored safely in the banana tissues uh, and they're not getting washed out of the soil. And then when spring comes, then we can chop the banana and sort of feed that stem back to other plants. And it's very high in nitrogen and very nutritious for other plants. And um, so that's the Abyssinian banana, the Musa basho and Musa sicamensis, which is the Nepalese sort of mountain banana. And the, the, the sort of the goal with all of those is to see what, what is the best at sucking up nutrients and holding on to them over winter. Well, let's go and look at the edible banana plants that you're growing. Yep. We're just coming up to the older banana patch now. So here we have Goldfinger and Messiluki. Nobody recommends another banana more highly than this. And so, yeah, we've been getting them into the community and getting people growing them. And we're coming up now to a couple of the terraces. So here is 
a Mexicola avocado seedling that we, we grew from some seed that escaped from a very old avocado orchard. The, the skin is very thin and actually you eat the skin, it's peppery and we're aiming to get this fruiting soon and sort of and then we can do a bit more controlled hybrids and that kind of stuff. Mm. When you say we, who are you talking about? Oh, me and my wife. Um, she does help me a fair bit. But also I've, I've got a fairly good um, network locally of people who help. So some of the other stuff people help locally with is, uh, say, the citrus. Uh, I've got people locally who help with avocados and plant out a bunch of seedlings. And through that process, we look to select better stuff that we can, we can use locally. Um, I've got about 10 different species of ginger. And, yeah, we're, we're trying to find, again, and rank what are the best sort of four or five gingers for the area. So one of the gingers we're quite keen to, to get planted soon is an Australian native ginger. It, it's fairly similar to lemongrass, but with a sort of a ginger hint to it. Mm. And it, it smells and tastes like lemon. We've come about 10 metres further up, and uh, what have we got here? What we have here is actually a native species of the nettle family from the Kermadec Islands. And this is a plant you should probably cook, but the raw leaves taste like peas to me. Mm, they do. Cooked peas. Yeah. That, that's one of the plants where there is no other recorded information of people eating it. Mm. Now you've got heaps of shells scattered around the plants. So what, we'll, what we do is we spread them through the soil and we try and leave them sort of cup side up. And that way when they're sort of buried in the soil they, they're always going to act as a little reservoir of water. They also buffer the soil pH ever so slightly. Um, yeah, so here you can see the workers have dug the path a lot. This is a, a terrace in formation and we're about a meter above the, the true soil level. Yeah. The terrace is about a meter and a half wide, almost two meters at points. There's, uh, I haven't measured it, but we're, we're looking at one, two, three, sort of three and a half, four, four of them. They're about at least 20 meters long. So yeah, that's close to 100 meters of um, terrace. A lot of plantable land. Yeah, and as we're standing now, we can look down at one of the banana patches of a variety called Pisang Awak. It just means normal banana. <laughs> The Malaysian word sounds way more exotic. Yes. Uh, so that one there, there's now probably five or six pups, and we'll we'll split those off in spring. And already there's starting to be a bit of a dent in the local area from bananas that we've supplied. So other people are starting to get fruit on their plants, and who knows, there could be could be a lot more backyard bananas in the buller. Excellent. John Collier talking to Cosmo at his West Coast Agroforestry Nursery at Charleston on the West Coast. Well, rural New Zealand is home to many niche businesses brimming with number eight wire ingenuity and passion, like the factory we're taking you to now, involving three generations of the Fawcett family. You won't find anything mass-produced here. In fact, there's a three- to four-year wait for one of their products, and competitive woodchoppers from all around the world line up for their saws and axes. Past the big tractor sale yards, the fencing and farm shed suppliers and the big hunting and fishing store, and you'd likely miss it. This humble little factory on the outskirts of Masterton. 
It's a family business formed out of the love of wood chopping and now taking the tool of the sport to the world. Just forging the axes out from a uh, billet of steel. That's how we do all the tuatahi axes. That's Grant, son of Eddie Fawcett, who founded Tuatahi Axes 40 years ago. Eddie's in his 80s now. And, um, my father was an axeman and uh, uh, I started chopping when I was about 15. Then there's Quinton in his 20s, Grant's son and Eddie's grandson. It's one of the most important parts of the whole process, this, this way of forging. The trio call themselves axemen, and the axes and saws they make are now exported to Europe, Australia and North America. Eddie's stepped back from the business now to let Quinton drive it forward. But as Grant explains, it's the family passion for competitive wood chopping that still binds them and the business together. I chopped with Eddie, followed him around, and I enjoyed the competing. I got to under-21s and uh, the national team. And you used to watch your father do it as well? Yeah, I used to sit on the Xbox. In those days, kids weren't allowed in the ring. But I, I managed to just sit on the Xbox and I was told not to, not to move. We'd travel all around New Zealand going to the shows. Little towns that there'd be a chop at. Or a little paddock somewhere that there'd be a chop at. And yeah. what did you love about it? The people, the competitors. Um, you're like a big family. And we all still are. Um, and Quinton did the same? Did he come yeah. along with you? Yeah, yeah. So when I chopped, that's, I mean, I think he was three weeks old when he came on his first chop. Eddie was awarded a Queen's Service Medal for his services to wood chopping in 2019. I'm totally wood chopping. You know, everything to do with wood chopping around the world. But I can also see that uh, wood chopping struggling a little bit in some countries and we need to get into other things. And, and we're doing that. Other markets have opened up for this niche business, but their specialty remains racing axes and saws. Now in Sydney, which is the Wimbledon of wood chopping, Tuatahi Axis for the last 20 years would have won all of the championship events except one. So how did it all start? Well, Eddie was into saws as a young man, working at a local mill, and decided to set up as a saw doctor before another opportunity came along. Everything was going on really good and I was competing then and uh, I had an older chap, elder chap working for me, uh, Mr Ted Ferguson. In those days farmers and people used to bring in axes uh, to be sharpened and Ted and I were at an engineer's in Martinborough and he saw an old shearing grinder there and uh, he said, oh, Let's buy that. I, I can uh, sharpen farmer's axes on that. Really? Yeah. Yes, he said. Uh, anyhow, we bought it and brought it home and he got it all going. And uh, Then I decided to do my racing axes on it. In those days, it used to take us a week to do a racing axe. On this thing, it only took a couple of hours, less than that even. And they really cut. Now they make about 45 axes a week, using some of Eddie's original processes and new computerised equipment. We're machining the eyes in our axes. Used to get this process outsourced. It was the last part of the puzzle that wasn't done in-house here. And uh, four years ago, we decided, no, we're going to learn it and we'll do it ourselves. So 
That's what we're doing now. And I'm hoping to get some more of them, if my grandfather will allow me. <laughs> it's really, really important that those eyes are dead center and dead square because if your handle's off, then when you're chopping with it, your axe head's gonna be all over the place. So really, really crucial part of the, part of the axe is the eye. Not having to send these away to do that, what has it meant for the business? Um, it's meant that we can, um, if we have an idea for a new style of axe, we can, we can make it that day and we can be testing it. It's just meant way more freedom for us and way more control over what goes out the door. As well as being a former NZ rep in wood chopping, Grant is an expert sawyer. But these days he spends most of his time forging and finishing the axes. At the moment he's fitting the axe handles. We uh, progressively fit them, uh, take them out, rasp a little bit more off, then hit them in again and that gets them super tight. So it's about three times going through the in and out of the head to get it a perfect fit. Where do you get your wood from? Uh, this is American hickory. Although it has a little bit of give, it can take a lot of shock. But it's harder and harder to get good hickory. Does being a competitor help you in the making of the tools? Yes, it does, yeah. I tried teaching uh, people. Well, you know, you'd hire people and try to teach them how to do saws. But unless you're competing and unless you've got a total love for it, it doesn't work. You've got to have that passion for it. Does it help you in the way you sculpt that handle? Yeah, yes, it does. Um, and a lot of the people I know who they are, who I'm making that axe for. So I know that person. And when I see them again, they're going to tell me how that blade's gone. Female competitors, that's a, you know, a totally different setup to a male competitor. The handles are smaller and the weight's different. So you have to realise that and you have to adapt. And um, yeah, that's what it's all about. We head over to the worksaw section and I ask, in a world full of chainsaws, who wants such a tool if you're not into competitive sawing? The market is for basically anyone who wants to cut a tree. Also, a lot of the forestry services over in America, because of the emissions, they're not allowed to use uh, chainsaws in most of their trails. So if a tree falls over, they'll, they'll go to one of our worksaws and they'll, they'll clear it that way. Some people will train with them. It's very hard in our sport to get a training saw. And so something like that, it's readily available and, yeah, yeah, very versatile saw. What's the difference between a competition saw and a work saw? Ooh, um, well, our work saws are M-tooth, so the tooth looks like an M, and our racing saws are peg and rakers, which is a completely different different ball game. There's uh, so many more variables and, yeah, it's just, it's like anything. You put a lot more work into a a race car than an everyday car and our work saw is an everyday saw and the, the race saw is a yeah, top competition saw. They'll only cut through clean wood and yeah, you may get 10 or 15 cuts out of it before it has to be resharpened. Uh, with our racing saws, I think at one point there was a three or four year wait on them. So if you ordered one in 2020, you'd get one in 2024 all things being right. So. And the axe side of the business, how does that compare um, to the yeah, saw side? We obviously produce a lot more axes than saws, um, but axes are a lot easier to produce than saws. Um, I think at the minute there's about a three month wait on our, on our racing axes, and we aim to do 30 plus each week, you know, the 45 axes a week, and, and yeah, we're still, we're still three months behind, so there is a real demand for them. Well, now it's time to show off some of the family's wood chopping skills. 
And that's Quinton at the handle of a tuatahi racing axe, making quick work of a marked up chunk of wood in the yard. What's the secret to getting a quick uh, cut through there? Uh, just cut thousands of logs. Yeah, and have a good axe. Know someone who makes a good axe and uh, yeah, training. Like everything, you gotta train for what you do. And yeah, yeah, have the right people teaching you helps as well. You've I still got it, 10 toes, have I you? I still have 10 toes. Did you always think you'd become involved in the business? No, I was very, I was passionately against it actually. When you go chopping, a lot of people say, oh, you'll be, you'll be in there before you know it. And that sort of spurred me on to, no, I don't want to go there. But pretty quick I realised that it's actually a really cool place to be. Did you always have ideas about where you'd want to take it? Or did you want to keep it fairly traditional? That's a very hard question. Uh, you have to keep your traditional roots. That's what's given us our name in Tuatai. But you have to bring in the 21st century as well. A lot of the stuff here... It's still the same stuff that my grandfather bought when he started the business, but now we're starting to, with the CNC machines and even like laser engraving and stuff like that, it's all pretty much come from me and that's, yeah, it's keeping those traditional roots but moving it into the 21st century. Are there any advantages to having a business like this in a small rural town? I would say no. We really try and get New Zealanders to buy our gear, but we have found it very difficult. A Kiwi can't justify spending that this much money for an axe most of the time, on our consumer side anyway. On the racing side, they certainly can. So, yeah, I'm really trying to get out to those farmers and um, dock workers and tell them that, well, it is worth the, the money because it's a quality product and it is made here in New Zealand. So, Tell us how COVID affected the business. It really made us change our approach to what we were doing. We were very racing-focused. Um, purely racing focused, uh, everything came second and then when Covid struck oh, there was no more racing. Uh, Australia dried up and the states and all around the world and so we really had to focus on our consumer side and the everyday person and that's when we started making the Camp Axe and really pushing our Work Axe brand and our, our racing axe ethos put into an everyday consumer item and we did and uh, very thankful for those people because that's what kept us afloat. I'm very happy that my grandfather and my father and my auntie were all on board with that because, yeah, I'm not sure where we'd be if we all didn't pitch in. And so the competitions are back up and running and you're back to the old business as well? Yep, yep, for sure. Uh, Europe has really taken off. Um, still have invested a lot of money overseas. And so that's good for us because, yeah, they use all our gear. Like uh, right now, Brisbane show's on whole bunch of New Zealanders gone over there and yeah it's really good that chopping is still a sport. What is good about chopping as a sport? Oh it's like your extended family you hate each other for that 30 seconds or whatever that you're on the log but you know everyone and 99% of people are good buggers um, just like any sport I guess that way and they'll all be there to help you out if you need anything like um, just had Jason Winyard be diagnosed with cancer lately and seeing the community support come around him yeah we are just one big extended family. Mm. Axe throwing has become a bit of a thing hasn't it? Yeah I never thought that would happen it is a fun sport I really um, implore anyone to uh, set up a round piece of wood in the back of their yard and chuck an axe at it um, but it has yeah like we sell a lot more uh, thrown axes now 
Um, we do the double bit one, so they've got two blades, whereas most people start on just a single little hatchet style. Um, but I haven't gone down to um, any of the establishments yet to have a go, but I might try and sneak in one day and act like I don't know what I'm doing. While they know what they're doing here at Tuatahi, some things will remain within the family, like the material used for those sharp blades. Tell us about the steel and where it comes from. Uh, so it's our own steel, and plenty of people will tell you they know what our steel is. They'll say it's W2, and I can get that steel, but they can't. It's our own steel that my grandfather came up with. Um, it's your recipe? Yes, it's our recipe. And where's it made? Uh, it's made in Europe, so we have to get it from a small forge and we have to get it at a certain tonnage because we add stuff to it and we take stuff out of it. So yeah, if anyone says to you, I know where we get that steel from, they don't. They have no idea. <laughs> You're not going to reveal any part of the recipe? No. What makes your, spiel, no, your steel I will, special? No, I will not be revealing any part today. Um, yes, it's very, it's very top secret information. <laughs> Fair enough. What's at the back here? Uh, this is our heat treatment room, but I'm not going to take you in there. It really is the secret to our business, the heat treating side of things, and um, yeah, there are some things that's just keep it between us. But this process has been part of the business's success from day one? Yeah, I would say so. We've never uh, tried to shortcut this process whatsoever. It's always remained the same since Eddie started it. And Eddie would only do a few axes at a time, and now we're doing 30 or 40 axes at a time, but still the process has to, has to stay the same. I've had change. a sneak look at that process and that yes. machine, and it's not too flash. No, no it's not. I think everyone has a um, misconception that when they come to our, our factory because of the products that they see, they're all um, wearing white coats and we're all spick and span, but, uh, but no, it's the exact opposite, I imagine. <laughs> Tuatahi's founder, Eddie Fawcett, says the secret to success is quite simple. I'm a fellow that listens. I watch and I listen. doesn't matter who's talking to me. Um, and that's one of the things that has made it where it is. Uh, there's been lots of people that have given me advice and I haven't rubbished it. I've sorted it out and, uh, yeah... But uh, it's hard work making a top axe. Eddie Fawcett at the Tuatahi Axe Factory in Masterton. You also heard from his son Grant and his grandson Quinton. If you're not familiar with the sport of wood chopping, head to the video on our webpage where you can see Quinton pick up an axe and show how it's done. And you can also subscribe to Country Life as a podcast there. You can find it on any podcast platform. Hey Kona. Thanks for joining us. Kakite Ano. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. 
To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.